Today we have the honor of welcoming Professor Alan Dershowitz. Alan is an American lawyer and former law professor known for his work in U.S. constitutional law and American criminal law. From 1964 to 2013, he taught at Harvard Law School, where he was appointed the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law in 1993. Alan has been called the nation's most distinguished defenders of individual rights and America's most public Jewish defender. He has defended clients such as O.J. Simpson and Mike Tyson and continues to represent numerous defendants, taking half of his cases pro bono. Professor Dershowitz is the author of 20 works of fiction and non-fiction, including six bestsellers. His books include The Case for Peace, How the Arab-Israeli Conflict Can Be Resolved, The Case for Israel, and his latest, Get Trump, The Threat to Civil Liberties, Due Process, and Our Constitutional Rule of Law. Alan has been a vocal critic of the judicial reform proposed by the Netanyahu government. I invited him to learn his position on the reform and what changes he would like to see take place in Israel's judicial system. Thanks for joining, Professor Dershowitz. Um, let's jump right in. Uh, I think, you know, folks wanna, are interested in knowing your opinion uh, on the current reform that the Netanyahu government is pushing in Israel. I know you've been a, quite a vocal voice a critic of the reform and um, so I'm wondering if you can you know give uh, folks a, a brief introduction overview to those that don't know what's going on in Israel uh, what are you know key tenets of the reform and why you oppose and certain of your criticisms of the reform in general let's start at the end uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has just announced that he would delay the reform until after Passover Easter Ramadan and the celebration of Israel's 75th anniversary. I've been pushing for that delay now for a long time, and I'm very gratified that it occurred. Uh, for anyone who foolishly thinks that Israel is on the verge of uh, an authoritarian or tyrannical uh, regime, just look at the results of the demonstrations. Uh, there's no more democratic country in the world today than Israel. Uh, it has had, what, five, six, I can't even count, elections in the last few years. What could be a greater check on authoritarianism than uh, periodic elections? Uh, it has had these demonstrations, which uh, the prime minister of Israel has never tried to stop. He said, please behave peacefully. But uh, uh, the, the idea that Israel, with its vibrant population, its opinionated population, would ever succumb to tyranny, is just a sign that people on the left, um, op opponents, many opponents of the judicial reform are overstating, overstating and exaggerating the dangers. Even if every single one of these judicial reforms was enacted, Israel would remain, if not the most, one of the most democratic countries uh, in the world with the most important check and balance that any democracy could ever have, namely frequent elections. So. Uh, let's let's put aside the rhetoric, the hyperbole, and the nonsense on both sides. There's a lot of nonsense on the right, too. They say the Supreme Court of Israel has too much power, but it should have a power to uh, overrule Knesset decisions that violate minority rights, uh, the rights of due process, the rights of free speech, um, the most fundamental of all uh, rights. Um, so the Israeli Supreme Court should retain that power, though it should not necessarily retain the power to uh, make economic or, or political decisions. So both sides are vastly exaggerating, and for good reason, because this is not about judicial reform. If the same judicial reform were proposed 
by a centrist a government, uh, nobody would oppose it. People might oppose it, but they wouldn't go out in the streets. This is about the last election. Um, this is a form of election protest. Uh, a lot of people, particularly in Tel Aviv, particularly on the left, are outraged at the government that has been put in, in, in place by an election that was very close, a very close election, less than 1%, separated the voters on the right and the left, but that's the Israeli system. And so the protests are really against Netanyahu, uh, Ben Gavir, uh, Smetrich, and others in the government, not, not about judicial reform. Now, the judicial reform that's being proposed by the right, right is much too severe, which is why I oppose it. But the uh, howls of fear from the left are also uh, exaggerated. That's why I oppose them. What I favor is President Herzog. Uh, who wants to have both sides sit down and he wants to mediate or have others mediate a resolution. When I met with Bibi Netanyahu, I've known him for 50 years, when I met with him recently in Israel, he used the word balance six times in our discussion, six times. He said, I want balance, I want balance. I don't want the extremes on either side. I want balance, I want balance. But then he did something that undid the balance. He fired the yep. minister of defense when the Minister of Defense called for what he eventually gave into, namely a delay and postponement. So I don't think that was right of the Prime Minister, who's my friend, um, to have fired uh, Gallant. Uh, that was a mistake. And I think he's come to regret it. And I think that's part of the reason why he Absolutely. now has form. But I hope that people use this time, it's just a couple of months, to sit down and work out an arrangement whereby both sides get the core of what they need, uh, but give up considerable amounts of the periphery of what they need. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like you do support certain reforms, but you, you just yes. believe that this is taking it way too far. Like, in, in, in my opinion, the, the Supreme Court of Israel has way too much power. Um, I'm wondering if you, if you think the same and what, what kind of reform you would like to see instituted in Israel. Right. I don't think they have way too much power. I think they have a bit too much power. They shouldn't have the power to decide what's reasonable or unreasonable. They shouldn't have the power to decide who's uh, allowed to serve in the government. They shouldn't have the power to decide whether the gas deal in Lebanon is constitutionally, there is a constitution, it's not a written constitution, but it's based on basic laws, is uh, permissible. Uh, no, they shouldn't have those powers, but they should have the power to decide on minority rights, on free speech rights, on due process, on on basic liberty. So I think both sides need to come to the center a bit. I also think that I can understand why people are concerned that Supreme Court justices get to name their successors, or at least to veto uh, people who would take over from them. And, and I'd be prepared to eliminate that as long as the majority of the committee that selects justices is comprised of professionals, not politicians. I don't want to see politicians, uh, Lee Kud members or members of the right-wing coalition decide who should be on the Supreme Court. It should be judges, lawyers, and other professionals. So I think there's room for compromise on all of these issues, but it requires people of goodwill sitting down and being willing to give up certain things. The reason there was no compromise up to now is because both sides are winning. The extremes of both sides are winning. The people who have conducted the demonstration have increased their power and their influence is evident by the fact that they got the prime minister to change his mind. He doesn't easily change his mind. They got him to do it, so they're winning. And the people on the right are winning because they're uh, uh, getting their base uh, behind them. 
And um, so when you have both sides winning, the the need for compromise seems less obvious. The losers are the majority of Israelis who want to see compromise and the country of Israel itself, which is suffering grievously in international opinion and support even by many uh, Jews in America. Now, let me talk about Jews in America. Um, many of them are incredibly ignorant of what's going on in Israel. They have no idea what judicial reform is, but they're protesting and they're screaming and they're yelling and they're cutting off support and they say, we're not going to invest. They have no idea what's happening. You know, never in history, and I would say this categorically, never in the history of the world has there ever been a protest like this about judicial reform. People don't care about judicial reform. Lawyers do. Law professors do. But the average Joe on the street, whether in Israel or in the United States, doesn't care. In Israel, at least they know what's going on. In the United States, my friends who are protesting, you ask them what's about, they have not the slightest idea. They just don't like Netanyahu. They don't like Ben Gavir. They don't like Smutridge. And so they're going to protest. And it's protest based on ignorance. You mentioned uh, the Constitution and a little bit about judicial review. I know you have um, critics uh, such as Josh Hammer that, you know, I, I was present in the debate that you, you had with Josh. So he says that the problem with Israel is that in Israel there is no Constitution. So judicial review is, is pretty much arbitrary. Judges can, justices can decide, you know, this is unreasonable, so let's strike down this law. But you mentioned briefly, you, you mentioned recently that there is a constitution. It's not just written. So what does that mean specifically? Well, it's like England. England has a constitution, but it's not written. It's based on tradition. It's based on deep values. It's based on basic laws. The United States Constitution is vague. What does equal protection of the laws mean? What does due process of the laws mean? What does cruel and unusual punishment mean? What does the freedom of speech mean? What does Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion mean? Those are vague general principles. So the United States has judicial review. Israel has judicial review. By the way, you can count on a couple of hands the number of countries in the world that have any judicial review. Most countries don't have judicial review. Um, Canada has judicial review. Germany has judicial review. England has modified judicial review. America has considerable judicial review. Israel has the most judicial review of any country in the world, and cutting back a little on that would not uh, change Israel into an authoritarian state. The basic laws that you mentioned, how do you modify them? Isn't it, they, they, they talk about the basic laws being quasi-constitutional laws. Why aren't they constitutional? And is it, it is my understanding that you can you know, change a basic law simply by, with, with a simple majority. So if, if that's the case, then... How can you perform judicial review with a law or, or a basic law that you can reform with only a simple majority? True, in England, too. Um, English laws can be revoked by a simple majority, but there is a consensus in England and in Israel that there are certain laws that can't be easily um, overruled, like, for example, freedom of speech. Um, freedom of speech has been on display in Israel uh, in these demonstrations. And I think if anybody tried to curtail the freedom of speech, the legislature, the judiciary, the executive would all be opposed to that. Because the tradition of freedom of speech is deeply embedded in Israel as it is in England and in the United States and in Canada. So there are certain traditions that have deep roots. In America, Justice Frankfurter once said that these are rules that essentially mark 
the indicia of a, of a civilized country. Uh, and they're vague and they're up in the air. But they're just as vague in the United States with a written constitution and in Canada with a written constitution as they are in England and Israel without written constitutions. You know, the Soviet Union had a written constitution. It was it was parchment preachments, but it was nonsense. So the existence of parchment preachments, paper constitutions, is not nearly as important as the spirit of liberty living in the hearts and souls of men and women. How was... I think people are don't don't know a little bit about the history of 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 the judicial system in Israel before Aaron Barak, who I understand is your friend, uh, started the revolution. You know the judicial revolution, what some would call, in the '90s. How did you know justices perform judicial review prior to the reform in the '90s? What changed there? And isn't this reform that you know the the Netanyahu government pushing? Just a return to the pre-1990s era of a of the system that you know had Israel before the 1990s. That's the great myth. That's not true. I knew most of the justices before the 1990s. I knew Justice Shamgar. I knew Justice Agranat. These were people who performed judicial review, and they did it sometimes aggressively. Um, so it's been a matter of degree. I think my friend Aaron made one mistake. Uh, he used the words judicial revolution. Uh, I don't think most people want to be the subject of a revolution. They want to partake uh, in it democratically. And I think perhaps the Supreme Court in some areas went a little bit too far. But he doesn't. The, the, the new judicial reform proposal doesn't take us back to the Agronaut uh, and, and Shamgar regime. It takes us way, way back before the establishment of the state of Israel. It essentially eliminates judicial review. And most importantly, it turns the Supreme Court into a political institution selected by politicians. And that never happened in Israel. There was never a time in Israel when the great justices and Israeli Supreme Court has had justices far better on average than the United States Supreme Court, the Canadian Supreme Court and other Supreme Courts, because they were selected by professionals, not by politicians. In the United States, the process is a disaster. The president nominates and the Senate confirms. And if the Senate's in the hands of the same party, it's a rubber stamp. And so it's become much too politicized. The Israeli system is much better than the American system. So you you do believe that there should be certain individuals not elected democratically that should have the say of who will be in the Supreme Court? Isn't that like an anti-democratic um, kind of way of looking at things, which... I'm not necessarily a, a... It's absolutely anti-democratic, and it should be. The Supreme Court is supposed to be an elitist, non-democratic check on popular will. The last thing you want is a Supreme Court that's just another popularly elected branch of the government. In the United States, um, you know, we have three branches of government, and they're all selected in different ways. Originally, the Congress uh, House was selected by the people. The Senate was not selected by the people. Nobody got to vote for Senate. It was picked by the legislatures of the different states. And the justices were picked uh, by the president, but only with the consent and advice of the Senate, which was an elitist, non-democratic institution, where today it's a very non-democratic institution. The people of California, which is one of the largest countries in the world, California countries in the world, has two senators, and uh, um, uh, Rhode Island has two senators, and Alaska has two senators, so that the vote of any particular person in California 
is about one fortieth or one fiftieth, maybe even more, a value of the vote of somebody in a small state. So uh, the essence of a working democracy and checks and balances is that you have a judicial institution which is outside of politics, uh, which can say to the majority, no, we're not going to let you constrain free speech. Let's consider free speech for a minute. Nobody approves of free speech. Everybody wants free speech from me, but not for the ACE teacher course in that subject. And when you ask students, how many agree with free speech? Everybody raises their hand. But what about Holocaust denial? No, hands go down. What about attacking women uh, saying that they want, you know, whatever you want, any sexist thing or any racist thing? By the end of the class, nobody wants free speech. That's why you need a Supreme Court to defend the free speech of Nazis. Uh, that was years ago at Skokie. Today, in places like Canada and the United States, you need free speech to defend the right of Zionists. If not for free speech, Zionists would not be able to speak on college campuses in Canada, in the United States, and in England. And that's why it's so important to preserve free speech. Free speech, by the way, is really good for the Jews. My grandmother, when I used to come back from a baseball game, I would say, Grandma, the Dodgers won. She would say, yeah, but was it good or bad for the Jews? So let me tell you, due process is good for the Jews. If Leo Frank had had due process, he wouldn't have been lynched in Georgia. Uh, free speech is good for the Jews. It allows us to uh, defend against charges uh, that are false. Um, and uh, minority rights are good for the Jews. So uh, a, a, a check on the majoritarian impulses of any society is good for the Jews, and it's good for every minority, and it's good for the majority as well, ultimately. I'll go on a tangent here because it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you agree with the Electoral College. You're a proponent of the Electoral College. You disagree? I do not. I don't. It's too undemocratic. It's a matter of degree. I think the Electoral College is too undemocratic. When you vote for president of the United States, it ought to be a majority vote. And in the last few years, uh, you know, we since 2000, we saw um, uh, Bush win with a minority of the votes. Um, obviously, we saw uh, Hillary Clinton lose with a majority of the votes. Um, so I, I would not favor the Electoral College. I would, I would go to direct popular voting as long as there was a check and balance on that through the First Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, et cetera. So, so for electing a president, you would favor pure majority vote, and for electing a Supreme Court, you would prefer a system where the elite, quote-unquote elites that you mentioned have to appoint, a, you know, the, the, the justice. And this, is, you know, this leads to my next question, which is, it seems to me that you, you're, in fa you're against repealing the 17th Amendment, which was, a, I mean, no, you would be in favor of repealing the, rather, a, the 17th Amendment, which made the, um, the state senators, the, the, the senators, rather, be elected by popular vote and not by the state legislature. Well, um, I don't think the state legislature is any better than the popular vote. Um, I would not be upset if the Senate took the form of the House of Lords in England. Um, but um, I, I don't mind having uh, a Senate, but you know, the Senate is very anti-democratic. It, it was more anti-democratic when it was appointed by the legislature, but it also had less power. Now, today, it has more power. Um, but uh, appointing it by the legislature was even worse because that led to corruption. And don't you think that it can lead to corruption, the, the current way that, it's, that the justices are, are elected in Israel? It, because effectively, 
you, some critics say that it can be considered nepotism because current justices have veto power over the next justices. The veto power of the current justices. I just want the majority to be professionals, not politicians. I don't want politicians to have the only role. If you had a mixed system, I could live with that. But I don't want politicians to have the first, last, final, and only vote and who gets to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Because they'll just appoint their political hack um, cronies, and um, that is not a good system. So I want to see a majority of the of the selection process be professionals. Got it, got it. Um, going back... But it's subject to corruption. And, and the basic check on corruption is to make sure that the criminal justice system is not weaponized, is not turned into a partisan tool, but is used effectively and fairly um, against all people who are corrupt. Makes sense. So, you you say that this will this reform, if it's um, passed as it is right now, it will undermine your ability to defend Israel in the world stage. I know many people, you know, took your words out of context. Some people that I know, I you know, I, want, I want you to hear it from you exactly. What do you mean by this? I don't understand how it could be taken out of context. I spend a lot of time defending Israel in the court of public opinion, in courts of law, and um, in the International Criminal Court. It, let's start with the International Criminal Court, which is the most important. <clears throat> it has a concept called complementarity, which is that they do not have jurisdiction over soldiers. Remember, the International Criminal Court doesn't go after countries, it goes after soldiers. Um, the International Court of Justice goes after countries. But uh, it has a concept of complementarity, which is if the legal system of the country is adequate to prosecute war criminals, then the International Criminal Court does not have jurisdiction. And up to now, we've been able to persuade the International Criminal Court that it doesn't have jurisdiction. I was part of that process. I spoke to the uh, prosecutor, the first prosecutor in the International Criminal Court. I made the case to him successfully pointing to the Israeli Supreme Court, showing him decisions of the Israeli Supreme Court, and, and others did the same, and he was persuaded. Uh, if the Israeli Supreme Court no longer has any power to enforce rules regarding the military, take, for example, what Ben Gavir wanted to do. He wanted to have a rule that says, if people are throwing rocks at you, you have a right to shoot back only if the person is not Jewish. If the person is Jewish, then you have to not shoot back. You can't use lethal force. Now, that's absurd. That's racist. And and um, uh, an Israeli Supreme Court would never uphold that. Um, but if they did uphold that, or if it was overruled by uh, the overriding provisions, then the International Criminal Court would take jurisdiction. And by the way, I would support that. I would say that if any uh, country had a rule that distinguish between Jews and non-Jews in the rules of confrontation, um, uh, the rules of engagement, uh, that the the International Criminal Court should have jurisdiction over, that that would be a war crime. But wh where do you draw the line? Because in Israel, many issues, in my opinion, boil down to the debate of Israel being a Jewish and democratic state. Because, you know, for example, Arabs in Israel don't have to go to the military. They don't, you know, they don't have the same duties they as, as Jewish, so they they should have to go. So there there is no they should, yes, they should. Uh, they might not be able to serve in certain capacities, 
but everybody in Israel, every Haredi, every woman, every man, every Arab, every Druze, every Christian should have to serve in the military for two years. Now, the military should have the authority to determine where to put them and what kinds of positions. By the way, there are Arabs today who serve in the Israeli military. There are Bedouin, there are Druze. So it's not an absolute rule, but I'm against any form of discrimination of that kind. I was involved uh, in the case um, giving advice to um, the uh, Israeli uh, Air Force that didn't want to allow women to fly combat missions. And we persuaded the Supreme Court to allow them to fly combat missions. And now I think I heard that among the Tom, top, ten, top gun, the top 10 top gun pilots, I think six of them are women or something like that, but a very, very substantial percentage are women. So, you know, discrimination is not good for anybody. And if you could get a, a loyal Arab, uh, whether it be Muslim or, or a Druze or a Christian Arab uh, who could serve effectively in the armed forces, they should serve. The same thing should be true of a Haredi. Now, you don't make a Haredi work on Shabbos. You don't maybe make a Muslim work on Friday. Uh, maybe you give a Christian off on Sunday. But... Um, with pikuach nefesh, the saving of lives, um, even people who are very orthodox, for example, I'm on the board of a company of, a, of an institute called uh, Hatzala, which rescues people who are uh, very, very in emergent situations. And Haredi Jews who work for them wear a beeper and they wear it on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, even though it's muksa, it's not permissive. And if the beeper goes off in the middle of Kol Nidre, uh, they have to get into their automobile or into their um, uh, 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 motorcycle and go and save a human life. So, yeah, I think the Jewish concept of Bikoch Nefesh, of saving human lives, is very, very important. And uh, everybody should be able to partake in that mitzvah. There are laws that are different for Jews and for Arabs. Let me give you a couple of examples. For example, the right, right of self-return. An Arab doesn't have the right for self-return because we acknowledge that this is the Jewish state. That's, not, example. The, that's not the reason. The, the reason is not because it's, first of all, it's not a Jewish state. It's the nation state of the Jewish people, number one. Number two, the reason for the law of return is not because it's a Jewish state. It's because during the Second World War and for 2,000 years before that, Jews had no place to go. And so the definition of who is a Jew really depended on who was, who was persecuted as a Jew. Um, and um, there have been efforts to try to change that, and over time it may change. But the definition of who's, for example, you can come in as a law of return if you're a practicing Christian, uh, if your grandfather is Jewish, or if you're a practicing Muslim, uh, you can come in as the law of return if your grandfather or grandmother was Jewish, because Hitler would have prosecuted you, would have sent you to the gas chamber. So it's not necessarily only because it's a Jewish state. By the way, half the states of the world have rules like that. Uh, there are different rules for ethnic Chinese and for others in China. There are different rules in many, many countries. And most importantly, the Palestinian constitution uh, provides absolute exclusion of any Jew owning property or living in, in, in Palestine uh, if Palestine becomes a state. So let's judge Israel by a single standard. Absolutely. Uh, not by multiple standards. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you what would you say to critics that say that Netanyahu is pushing this reform to protect himself because of his trial? Oh, that, 
That's nonsense. First of all, the trial has no realistic chance of success. This is, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a new book about Donald Trump called Get Trump, in which I argue that the cases against Donald Trump, who I didn't vote for, I, I'm not a Trump supporter, but are bogus. And the charges against Netanyahu are bogus. Uh, but they'll be decided by judges who were appointed 10 years ago and have life tenure. So there's no possible impact that the alleged judicial reform can have on Benjamin Netanyahu as a person. So I think it's wrong to try to personalize this. I think we have to debate it on its merits. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor thank Dershowitz. I appreciate the time. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Good. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.